G'day and welcome to this new podcast called Defending Conscience. I'm here with uh, some of the authors of the Ezekiel Declaration who have co-written a new book called Defending Conscience, How Baptists Reminded the Church to Defy Tyranny. And uh, what we're going to do is basically explore some of the issues around the book, uh, within the book, uh, discuss how the authors uh, came up with the process, etc. And uh, this is really, really important because over the last few years, we have seen an attack on freedom of conscience. This is the fundamental right, the fundamental liberty for people to act in accordance with the convictions that they have formed. Uh, these are things that uh, are sacred to us. And if anybody's not allowed to follow their own conscience, then we have a very low caliber of democracy altogether. So this is absolutely vital. We see people who've been forced to have injections and medical treatments and wear masks and not go to church and, and not go to work and all kinds of behaviours have been compelled. Uh, and the justification for all of that has been that uh, in, in modern society all around the Western world and, and the world generally, including the East and, and other nations, the justification has been that this is the right thing to do, thereby binding uh, individuals' conscience to that of the government and the state. Uh, and I believe uh, that that is always wrong. Even if the science is valid and the arguments have merit, uh, the conclusion is actually wrong because you just don't get to bind other people's conscience to yourselves. But that's my take on it. I think it's very important for, for those reasons. Uh, and so joining me uh, via Zoom, um, not that we're using Zoom, but via internet uh, video, is uh, one of the authors, Tim Grant. Tim, uh, welcome to your podcast, Defending Conscience. Good day. And also joining me is uh, the other author, Matthew Littlefield. Matt, tell me, first of all, um, explain to me what it was like. Uh, you, you guys wrote the Ezekiel Declaration um, and then you decided that there was a need to go further and, uh, and actually write a book. How did you go from uh, the response you got from the Ezekiel Declaration and, and maybe just in recover what that is for people who've never heard of the Ezekiel Declaration? And then, um, and then how did you transition into the need to expand that topic into a whole book? So we wrote the Ezekiel Declaration back in August. I think we might've started it in late July, but it was Tim's idea and Tim was inspired to do it by a similar declaration which was put out by Anglican pastors in England. And the reason we wrote the Ezekiel Declaration is because we saw the coming segregation that was about to happen in the church and did end up happening. And we just could not abide this. And no one was really saying anything. And so Tim contacted me and said, Matt, would you like to write a public letter? I'm like, okay, uh, what do you want to do? And so we wrote that on, on Google Documents. and. The core of the Ezekiel Declaration was very, very simple, that people should be free to choose whether or not they wanted to have a vaccine and they shouldn't be, it shouldn't be mandated and they shouldn't be segregated both within the church or within society. In fact, some people who read the Ezekiel Declaration uh, misunderstood it a little bit and thought we were just arguing against segregation in the church, but that's not true. We were against segregation on this issue for any aspect of society. And so we put that out in August and it gathered a bit of a storm it actually got a lot more traction than we expected. Uh, and that's thanks to Cauldron Pool, uh, who helped out with that. Uh, but 
it really blew up <laughs> in a way we didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And after that, there was some people who wrote critical articles about it and articles disagreeing with us, articles which agreed with our core tenant that we shouldn't segregate, but disagreed with how we were going about it and arguing that basically, yes, we agree with, that we shouldn't have segregation in the church, but the tone of the article wasn't exactly what they expected it to be. And so uh, we just gave it a little bit of time to see if somebody was going to do something better. There was a few people who said, uh, some public Christians who said, look, we think this could, be, could have been done a lot better. So our thought was, well, let's see what they do. And they ended up not doing much. And we <laughs> noticed in that time, between the publishing of the Ezekiel Declaration and the writing of the book, we just noticed how many Christians were not aware of the grand tradition of the Christian church's advocacy for liberty of conscience and particularly for the Baptist influence in that, but not just Baptists. I mean, Baptists had a strong influence over other denominations in England, and it was those denominations combined which spread this teaching into the Western culture, which we enjoy today. And so basically I said to Tim, I said, well, he, he initiated the Ezekiel Declaration. And I said to Tim, would you like to, we'd already written a couple of articles in response to some criticisms that we've been given. But I said to Tim, would you like to write some, co-write with me some articles? And I, we invited some other pastors to be a part of it, just, just sharing some of the history. Because I'd spoken to Tim quite a bit, and I knew he was doing some reading in the Baptist history, the early Baptist history, and some stuff to do with communist history and stuff like that. And I'd spent a lot of time researching the issue myself. And so basically, we decided we were going to write a series of articles. And so that's what we set out to do. We wrote a series of articles. And then those articles got longer. And then they got a lot longer and they're like, we're going to have to really break this up. And then eventually it got to the point where we we're like, you know what, I think we could turn this into a book. You read this uh, article written by Anglicans in England, um, which, which I hadn't uh, known was part of the inspiration for the Ezekiel Declaration. Uh, was that very different from your letter? And, and was the reaction to their letter very different from the reaction to the Ezekiel Declaration? Uh, yeah, we used a similar framework. Some similar points, uh, we adapted it for the Australian context, we added in our own points as well. So I think there's probably about three similar points uh, that, that we used. Th theirs was simply called an open letter uh, advocating against vaccine passports. And uh, one of my uh, friends who I went to college with, he was in, a pastor in England, he cited, um, I think I saw it on Christian, Christian Concern, the English uh, uh, equivalent of the ACL, I guess. And uh, I was aware that it received very favorable um, reception in England, um, and particularly written from, um, you know, Anglican ministers. Anglicans, uh, well, at least from, you know, our perspective as Baptists are known to be fairly mild. Uh, and they received a wonderful reception. Uh, they had about 2,000 uh, pastors uh, sign it. Um, so when we wrote ours, we had no idea the amount of um, traction that we would receive, uh, the amount of support. They had two, th two or 3,000. We had 3,000 pastors alone and another 27,000 uh, congregants, so 30,000 people, uh, which is a little bit shy of Abraham Kuyper. When Abraham Kuyper wrote a open letter objecting vaccine passports in 1850, he had 40,000. So I was a bit, bit upset we didn't reach that 40,000 like Abraham Kuyper did. Uh, there was another group, I think, from Denmark, uh, some pastors who contacted me as well, who asked, can we use our letter as a framework for, for their letter? Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, our letter didn't receive much, you know, much support. 
or much interest. So that sort of baffled me, the difference between the Anglican uh, in England, which received favourable, the Australian one, which we, we just blew up and received criticism and, and support, and this other one that re didn't receive anything. So I don't know, from my perspective, it seems that uh, yeah, there was a, 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 a void in the Australian uh, voice of the church that needed to be addressed, as well as the criticism as well. It seemed that there were quite a few people in the church who were very sensitive to Christians talking into politics. It, it is really surprising. I, I found that there was a, a lot of pushback to the stuff that you were you were writing in this letter. Um, tell me, Matt, what were some of the objections that you found yourself having to write articles? Uh, some of, I guess, the the low hanging fruit where people just really got stuff wrong, and and you thought, well, this needs an article to correct them because they've just missed something here. Well, one, uh, a lot of people are like this is not an issue the church should be speaking about. A lot of Christians around me were actually very, really happy with the Ezekiel Declaration uh, and from very different uh, political perspectives as well across the spectrum. They actually really enjoyed it, appreciated it uh, and signed it. But there were some Christians who just were not, uh, who were not aware of the church's grand legacy of advocating against coercion. It's very, very common, isn't it? It's, it's incredibly common. And one of the big problems with that is they don't understand. They don't understand that Western society didn't become the way it did by accident. It wasn't, it wasn't just something which happened overnight. It wasn't just something that happened because people preached the Bible and then suddenly everyone believed it. That's not what happened. Preachers did preach the Bible, but they also applied it and they thought about it and they debated it in universities and they debated it in parliament and they discussed it. <laughs> just uh, the novelty of preaching the Bible and then applying it to the world you live in. I mean, like, Imagine that shock horror. I mean, but I think, of course, of course, like, why wouldn't you? And and yet you've got this massive knowledge gap in the modern church where they don't know that the, that the historical church has been so active and vocal in being the conscience of the society around them in speaking to how they how society should be shaped, not just how the church should be shaped. Absolutely correct. And not only has it happened in Western society in general, it happened in Australia in particular. The very, it was very early on, within a few decades of the settling of the Australian continent uh, by the, you know, the English governors with the convicts and the setup that they had and the settlers, uh, that very early on they started to agitate and they were strongly influenced by the same uh, principles that many of the American founders were influenced by, particularly the writings of John Locke and his two treatises on government, Mm -hmm. letter concerning toleration and the reason this is important is because Locke formulated these views in discussions in in a theological context and was reflecting on the scriptures and what did the scriptures teach us about how society should be structured what is what does society teach us about people's ability to have sovereignty over their bodies and and freedom of association what does the scriptures say about mm -hmm. this and these were these theological ideas which influenced his thinking went into the framework for his philosophy and his philosophy influenced some of the greatest nations in the world, the United States and Australia. And because of this, Australia flourished yeah. and liberty and a good kind of liberty. I mean, there is a kind of liberty which you could call anarchy. Australia's never had anarchy. Mm. We've had a godly liberty for quite some time because our early founders understood these Christian principles. And so one of the reasons we had to write these articles is we just wanted to share with people, look, not only are we not doing something that Christians should do, not only are we not doing something that Christians have done before, 
but we're doing something which has influenced the goodness of the society you've lived in, and therefore we must do this. Mm. We, how many times did you hear people say during the pandemic, you have to love your neighbor and do this, 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 and this? Well, okay. Well, isn't loving your neighbor also advocating for a society where their body is not going to be violated? 100%. So we just wanted to show people mm. the, the grand Christian tradition behind what we were seeking to do. Yeah. Tim, I actually saw that argument. Uh, love your neighbor, therefore you must get vaccinated. Love your neighbor, therefore you must get, uh, you know, your mask on all the time. Love your neighbor, therefore you must believe whatever the government says and do whatever the government demands. Uh, and anybody who uh, dissents from the government or the science must therefore be uh, a fierce individualist and, and actually have no love of neighbour, actually hate their neighbour altogether. Um, what were your, um, uh, what did you think about those arguments and, and how do you refute those? Yeah, um, one of the uh, things I've learned from presuppositionalists is, is to ask the question, by what standard, uh, by what standard do we love our neighbour? And it's certainly not by the standard that the state gives us, um, even though they might be good and godly things at times, but the state, the standard is by what God gives us. And uh, uh, there, there might be occasions. I have no issue when I walk into a hospital uh, wearing a mask. Uh, I think that's a good standard to have when I, when I go into quarantine or ICU units to pray, pray for people. But in general, in, gen in society in general, what is the standard by which I am to love my neighbour? And uh, God has given us a standard. Uh, that is his uh, moral law, his uh, Ten Commandments. And uh, when I engage with my brother or sister, uh, there I can see in that standard that there's no requirement uh, for me to um, have an injection or to necessarily wear a mask in, in, in church. Uh, uh, the, 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 the standard there um, is to... Um, well, well, I think it's the standard in that situation is uh, that it's... For me to love my neighbour is to push back on the tyranny that's uh, that's causing angst in the the conscience of my parishioners and my congregants. Yep. Yep. Uh, so that, that's that's the the question I ask: By what standard uh, are these uh, precepts, these laws that the government is putting on us? Um, are they are they godly standards, or are they simply the whims of the majority? What really were the and you can choose top argument, top three, top five, top seven criticisms that you thought, look, there are so many things that need to be taught here. The, the record needs to be corrected because there's so much ignorance being spouted on this topic. What were the, the top seven issues you wanted to tackle? Uh, and I'm sorry, I put a number on that then. The, the top number of issues um, that this book tackles, why people should go out and, and order or buy uh, defending conscience, uh, what are the arguments, the false arguments that they're going to get an education and, and correct the record on uh, from this? Well, one argument, I'll give a couple and then Tim can jump in with the ones that he wants to address, but one argument in particular which jumps to my mind is that we're radical libertarians. <laughs> I'm not a libertarian. I'm actually, uh, I find that accusation a little bit funny, to be honest. But we wanted to show that there's a difference between Christian liberty uh, and, and, and Christian society and radical libertarianism. One of the famous articles which was written against us sought to attack us from that particular side. Secondly, that the church shouldn't have a voice on political issues. This is a strange one. This is just so strange. 
pernicious lie. Uh, how many Christians will watch Amazing Grace, which is the story of William Wilberforce, and say, praise God for William Wilberforce and John Bunyan and these and all the Christians, yes. all the congregations. The, the, I mean, this is one of my favorite stories, so forgive me for jumping in and helping okay. you answer my own question. <laughs> uh, but the world's first grassroots human rights uh, campaign was waged by Christians. Yeah, that that was it. Exactly correct. And it goes back. It goes back even further. We can follow the, a similar legacy with advocating against slavery in the early church. Another issue was that you, we should just focus on preaching the gospel and not worry about anything else. And the frustration with that is Jesus says, well, so Paul says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 16, 19 to 20, that our bodies are bought with a price. Mm. And what is that price? The blood of Christ. Our bodies are bought with the, so if our bodies are bought with the blood of Christ, that's at the core of the gospel. Mm. Then the application of that is that Christ owns our bodies, not the state. Didn't Jesus say, "Give 100%. unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto the Lord what is the Lord's"? Yep. The body is the Lord's, not Caesar's. Temple of the Holy Spirit. Exactly correct. So there are many different issues. Those are probably the top three which come to my mind just as I'm answering right now. Another issue is also that <laughs> I think this is maybe something which a lot of secular people uh, need to understand. They think, well, what good has the church done society? Well, if you read our book, you're going to understand a lot of the good which our church has done society. Yes. You're also going to see the church at its worst or at some of its bad points because we're going to show that when the church advocates for liberty of conscience in the correct way, and when we say liberty of conscience, we mean uh, liberty on issues of conscience, matters which are disputable, yep. uh, not matters like crimes, like theft or murder and stuff like that. These are disputable issues. You're going to see that society is at its best when the church is doing this yeah. and it's at its worst when the church supports the coercion of conscience. Yeah. And so we spend several chapters looking at the American prohibition movement, which actually highlights how badly the church can get it wrong and the impacts this has on society. Yeah. So whether it's Christians speak, so Christians reading it or non-Christians reading it, they're going to see the positive influence that the church can have on society when they, when it applies the application of the gospel to society. Yeah. Uh, so those are the four that I would give. I'll see what Tim would like to add. Tim, any other issues? Uh, that yeah, I, I can think of uh, two. One of the reasons that compelled me was simply because of the lack of understanding of our history within the Baptist circles, Australia, and um, the, the different uh, denominations around Australia seem to have no understanding of of the, the, the history of um, Baptists advocating for liberty of conscience. If you read... Um, uh, Thomas Crosby's History of the English Baptists, his four volumes, you'll see in particularly the first two and a half volumes there, uh, uh, Baptists in jail advocating for liberty of conscience, saying the state can't answer for me before God. I need to answer. Uh, I'm the one that needs to answer. And therefore, mm -hmm. we, you need to leave us uh, to worship and be obedient to God according to our uh, conscience. So that was... That was my primary reason when Matt said, let's write some articles. I was like, yes, I'm, I'm aware of the history. And these other, uh, you know, a lot of these other Baptists who were responding to us, who, we, uh, you know, from our, our own union and whatnot, just seem to be unaware of the incredible history. This, this, is, this is Baptist identity, uh, liberty of conscience. Um, and, and that was helpful in the process because we um, are going through that, seeing the history and the interpretation of or how Baptists argued for liberty of conscience then allowed us to provide a good foundation uh, to make a case for um, liberty against um, vaccine or, or medical mandates. 
So that was the other part that I found very helpful in the process to, to provide that argument against medical mandates from a Baptist perspective. Brilliant. Uh, well, this is uh, the podcast Defending Conscience. We're talking about the book by the uh, same title. And uh, the, the case is being made in this first episode that uh, there is a great need to understand church history. And whether you're Baptist or not, uh, Baptists are a part of the body of Christ and one body, many parts. Uh, this is our history. And for the West, church history is Western history. It's an indispensable, integral part of how we've arrived, where we've arrived at, and that is uh, being liberal, uh, being uh, in favour of, of liberty and not living under dictatorships. It was the pursuit of religious freedom which created uh, the seedbeds of democracy in America and, and other nations. And, and this is who we are. This is where we've got to. And uh, it is a complete destruction of the, the values of Western society that government should be able to bind the conscience of its citizens. Uh, get that book now at defendingconscience.com. Ebook PDF versions uh, immediately. And uh, wherever you are in the world, you'll be able to buy it on Amazon and in Australia. Uh, grab your copy from defendingconscience.com. All the links are on that website, defendingconscience.com. We will see you in the next episode of this podcast series, Defending Conscience.